What a wonderful time of worship so far this morning. Merry Christmas to you all. Such a great time of year for many of us to celebrate at the same time as acknowledging that for others this is a time that carries with it its own sorts of griefs. And the amazing thing is that when we think of the Christmas story, all of that is wrapped up in it as well. Christ broke into the course of human events and one of the darkest times in human history. The people of God felt like they had been abandoned. It had been 400 years, 400 years. There had never been a time like that in the history of God's people when there not a word had been heard from the Lord. They were living in Uh, under the subjective and cruel rule of a foreign empire. They were living in poverty. It was a difficult time in the history of God's people when Jesus broke in. But one of the other things that we notice when we read that story is that it should not have been a surprise, and for some it wasn't a surprise. God had given prophecies that the Messiah would come. God had said that there would be a time of darkness, that there would be a time uh, of desperation, but that the king was coming. And you could expect that. Prophecy had been given, and there were those who were waiting for it to be fulfilled. That's why last week when we, when we talked about Mary and the song that Mary sang when she heard that the Christ would be born through her, was filled with Scripture, was filled with her recitation in worshipful praise of the prophecies that had been given and would be fulfilled through her. The question of prophecy is an interesting one as we read the story of of Christ. I don't know if you have ever read the the narratives in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and you've seen repeated over and over, this happened so that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled, that was spoken, and then a quotation of the prophet. That's really important for Matthew because he is writing to a Jewish audience and one of his goals is to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But it's not only true in Matthew. You see it in Luke. You see it in John in particular if we bookend the life of Christ. You see it in John in particular in the cross narratives and the resurrection. John pointing out how Jesus was fulfilling prophecy as uh, he died for us on the cross, as he was buried, and then as he rose again. So all of this prophecy serves a very important purpose in Scripture, but it seems kind of strange. I don't know about to you, but it certainly has to me as you read through and think, is that really what the prophet was talking about? Some of the prophecies seem rather obscure. How is it that these are uh, indeed prophecies about Christ that are fulfilled in him? 
And we need to recognize that when Scripture says this happens so that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled, there are really two different kinds of prophecies that we're talking about, two different things to keep in mind. One would be direct prophecies. Great example, uh, when, when Matthew quotes Micah and says, but you, Bethlehem, are not the least out of you will come the shepherd king. That's a, that's a paraphrase of it. But there, 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah gave a very direct promise about the nature of the Christ who is to come. He will come out of Bethlehem. Now, that's amazing. Bethlehem is this tiny little town of no significance. We know all about Bethlehem, but that's only because Jesus was born there. Before then, nobody paid any attention to Bethlehem. 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah said, the promised shepherd king is going to come from Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus was born. Think about it in our terms. 700 years ago, 14th century, 1323. What was going on in the 14th century? Anybody know the Knights Templar and the Black Death, the, the, the plague that swept across all of Europe? That's, that's how long ago we're talking. And it would be like somebody in that age looking forward and saying, in 2020, in this obscure town in China, there's going to be this virus. Absolutely impossible, apart from the amazing work of the Holy Spirit in giving Micah that prophecy, which then was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So one of the purposes of, of prophecy and seen in the life of Christ is direct fulfillment of promises that were given about the Messiah that was to come. But there are other prophecies, and the one that we're going to look at this morning, also out of Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I called my son. I don't know if you've ever looked at it and scratched your head and thought, did Hosea have any idea that he was talking about Jesus when he wrote those words? I think probably not. The second type of prophecy is what is referred to as an Old Testament type of Christ that then is fulfilled in the antitype who is Jesus Christ. In other words, events or persons, significant figures in the Old Testament that represents something spiritual, and then we find out that that was actually Jesus at work. Great example. You've probably read it and puzzled over it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the people of Israel drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Jesus Christ. Nobody who was going through the desert thought, wow, that rock is Jesus. But looking back, we can see that the supernatural provision of living water is Jesus, who is our provision of living water that overflows and never runs dry. So, in Old Testament event 
or figure that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. One, one commentator described this as what seems like a coincidence, an accessory, a mere circumstance of the story, but because of the influence of the Holy Spirit, it carries a much deeper significance that helps us better to understand Jesus Christ. And as these prophecies are fulfilled, we then see that the whole Old Testament is filled with Jesus. That's what we've been talking about month after month as we've been going through the minor prophets. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. Again, bookending the life of Christ, going back to his resurrection, he's walking along the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples who haven't yet recognized him. They're in dismay. Jesus died. We thought a whole different thing, and this is what happened. They're disappointed, and Jesus tells them how foolish they are, and he opens up, this is the words, he opens up all of Moses and the prophets to show them that that is talking about him. So, two different kinds of prophecy, direct prophecy and these types that are then fulfilled in the life of Christ, and they're so important to us because they help us in three particular ways. One, they do identify Jesus as the promised one. There are many lists of the prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. I saw one list that's 500, I think, in 73. But that's taking the most obscure things that you could find in the Old Testament and saying, that was Jesus, that was Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's true. If you kind of narrow it down and, and, and focus on the things that are, that are obvious to us now, there are nonetheless at least 112 prophecies about the Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Nobody else. Jesus alone is the answer to all of the promises that God has given. That then points us to a second valuable thing that we can take out of this understanding of prophecy, and that is the reliability of Scripture. The Holy Spirit gave these words to the Old Testament authors, to the Old Testament prophets. There's no way that they could have predicted otherwise. These scriptures are not human writings. These were revealed by the Holy Spirit. They have demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy, and we can continue to trust them to this day. And then the third thing about those prophecies is that it gives us evidence of the work of God throughout human history. That was God at work providing water in the desert. And that connects with the living water that we see in Jesus Christ. He wasn't doing random things at random times, sometimes stepping in, sometimes not. He was constantly at work throughout human history, leading along one theme, and that is Jesus. Jesus, whom we celebrate this Christmas Day, is the fulfillment 
of human history, of every hope, of every promise, of every longing that we sing about in our Christmas carols, God at work to bring about that very moment which would then lead to the cross, the central moment in all of our history. That's all by way of introduction to say that when we get into this little phrase in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I called my son, it's not obscure, it's not a happenstance, it is placed there so that we can better understand Jesus and better understand the meaning of Christmas. So let's talk about Israel in Egypt. The prophecy originated in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 4. Hosea 11, 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. We have to go all the way back to the beginning of September to remember the book of Hosea and to remember that the focus of Hosea is God wooing back to himself the wayward, yes, even adulterous nation uh, of Israel that had wandered, that had worshipped foreign idols, that had forgotten their Lord. And so he calls them back into a faithful relationship. And in doing so, he reminds them of the long and loving history that he has had towards the people of Israel. I mean, think again about those words that we just read. God, first of all, points out his loving choice of that people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And we have emphasized, and I want to mention it again, that this was given when Israel was not a nation of any significance. There was nothing about that people that would attract God to them. He himself says, you weren't numerous, you weren't powerful. In fact, when he first spoke to Abraham, it didn't even exist at all. But God regardless of who they were, regardless of any of their merits, regardless of the fact that they would never be of any benefit to him, he himself, God, is entirely sufficient. He looked at that people, and he loved them, and he chose them. And so from the very beginning, Hosea emphasizes God's loving choice. Then he emphasizes the special relationship out of Egypt I called my son. Israel isn't just one nation among others that God just kind of says, hey, you, I'm going to work through you. God forms a loving relationship with that people that he actually identifies as his child. Out of, Israel, out of Egypt I called my son. 
He then emphasizes the power of the deliverance out of Egypt as he rescued his people through his mighty acts, delivering them from slavery, delivering them out from under the rule of an oppressive power, bringing them to himself. And then he talks about, did you pick up the words of of the nurturing, of the tenderness, as God led this people through the desert and, and formed them into a nation his own beloved people. And so what Hosea is trying to point out is this very special relationship that God had towards the people of Israel as He created that nation, as He led that nation, as He loved them, as He made them His own in tenderness and kindness and mercy towards them. The emphasis, of course, being the deliverance out of the conditions in Egypt. So then we see, now we'll go to Matthew chapter 2, that Jesus is identified as the fulfillment of everything that happened to Israel in Egypt. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. The three magi had just been to worship the child, and give their gifts. And when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there, I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew is saying that what happened to Israel in that day was fulfilled in Christ, that what was true of Israel applies to Jesus as well, that Jesus identifies himself with that people in that day and fulfills their story in his own life. Let's talk about the specific parallels or the specific connections. Of course, the fact that Jesus is God's chosen one. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. The one whom God chose and anointed to carry out his purpose on the earth. Matthew emphasizes this. The very beginning of chapter 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah of Jesus Christ. And then throughout chapters 1 and 2, we hear about Jesus, the the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the chosen one. This little baby is God's chosen instrument to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And then, of course, the identification of Jesus as God's son. In Exodus chapter 4, God said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That, of course, is a gracious identification of Israel as God's special uh, people in relationship with him. When Matthew identifies Jesus as God's son, it's not merely an identification. It's talking about reality. 
It's talking about the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is completely identified with the Father in every way. Jesus is is the anointed one, but he is also God who became flesh. And that's why Matthew gives the name Emmanuel, God with us. If Israel is identified graciously and called into this special relationship, Jesus himself is the very manifestation of what it means to be God's son, fully God, fully human, God among us in the flesh, God incarnate. We can say it all of those different ways to emphasize that special relationship, Jesus, God's son. We, of course, see that Israel sojourns into Egypt, and then we read of Jesus' journey with his parents into Egypt. Israel was a wandering people, and Jesus was a wandering child. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus lived under those oppressive circumstances of needing to flee from one land into another land to escape persecution, to escape danger, and then living in that land and being brought out of it. And so Jesus is fulfilling what we see in the story of Israel. How about the cruel treatment of Israel's sons in Egypt? Remember Pharaoh's decree that all of the male children were to be killed? And how about Herod's decree that all of the male children to and under in the region of Bethlehem were to be killed? The cruel treatment of Israel's sons in order to try and destroy the promise is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then, of course, the adversity that the people of Israel faced in slavery and the adversity that the child Jesus faced in his poverty and, again, in his refugee status. All of this kind of sums up to show us that this identification is another stage in the humiliation of Jesus Christ. What we mean when we refer to the humiliation of Jesus Christ is that he is God, the eternal, glorious second person of the Trinity, and he became flesh. He laid aside all of the trappings of his glory to be born in a manger. He laid aside all that it means to be almighty, unlimited God and was wrapped in the weakness and frailty not only of human flesh, but of a baby who needed his very basic needs provided for him. He walked dusty roads and his feet got dirty. He hungered and he thirsted. He felt weakness. He sweated drops of blood. He dreaded the cross before him. He grieved the loss 
of his relationship with his Holy Father as he hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He laid aside all of that and was humbled to the very worst form of death for our sake. This is the humiliation of Jesus Christ, and he did it for us. As Jesus fulfills, completely satisfies all of the promises that were given through the people of Israel, he shows us that he is the one who was sent by God to identify completely with his people to suffer the things that they suffered in order to rescue them. Jesus is the climax of biblical history, said one commentator, so that all that God did to deliver his people points to deliverance wrought by God. And so the final point here is that God delivers from Egypt. This difficult stage in Jesus' life, just like that difficult stage in Egypt's history, was part of God's rescuing plan. Jesus had to go through this stage of identification with his people in order then to rescue his people. Pastor Danny already referred to it in prayer. We didn't plan this. But Jesus had to be made like us in every way. That's what the book of Hebrews says. He had to. It was a requirement in order to rescue us that Jesus become like us in every way except for sin so that he could become a merciful and sympathetic high priest. Does Jesus understand when his people suffer? Yes, because he suffered. Does Jesus understand when his people grieve? Yes, because he grieved. Does Jesus understand when his people look with dismay at the road of suffering before them? Yes, because in the garden he dreaded the cross and pleaded that it be taken away from him. Does Jesus understand what it means to undergo suffering because of the joy set before us? Yes, because that is exactly what he did. Jesus became like us in every way so that he could be our sympathetic high priest. But there's more. Jesus became like us in every way so that he could deliver us from sin. A sacrifice for sin had to be made. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to take upon himself condemnation and wrath. And Jesus said, I'll do it. He became flesh, became human in every way just as we are so that he could then say, give me your sin. I will take it upon myself.
and I will go to the cross in your place. Jesus became flesh so that he could die for us, bearing upon himself the wrath of God so that everyone who believes in him could be forgiven and have life and hope and a future. That's what it means when we read in Scripture, out of Egypt, I have called my son. It means he became like us in every way so that God could bring through him deliverance. That difficult stage was part of God's plan, and deliverance is how we see God's hand at work in the life of Jesus Christ, protecting and delivering his people by his active and powerful, his intentional and loving works towards us to rescue us from our sins, and to lift us to glory, Jesus first had to enter into the misery of our lost and fallen condition. And so that's what Christmas means. That's what Christmas means for us today and tomorrow and next week and next year and every Christmas that has ever been and every Christmas that is yet to come, it means that Jesus identifies with you. You are chosen and loved. Not because you're particularly wonderful. I'm not. But somehow, somehow God looks on me and loves me despite all my faults and my failures, my foibles. I didn't intend that alliteration, but that worked out pretty well. <laughs> Somehow, in love, he predestined us for adoption as a son, as a daughter of the living God. Ephesians chapter 1. You are chosen and loved. If you are here today because your faith is in Jesus Christ, it's because God loves you and wants a relationship with you. And if you are here today and do not have faith in Jesus Christ, he is calling. He is saying, I loved you that much. Won't you come to me? Christmas means that Jesus identifies with our suffering. I won't hide it. This has been a tough year. This has been a tough week. Are you grieving this Christmas? Jesus knows it. And he understands it. God doesn't have some theoretical knowledge and so he's able to say, wow, that must really be tough. God in the flesh experienced grief and loss. He wept. And so he can enter into your grief and loss today. Is your suffering the result 
of some sort of exile in your own life? Are you a literal or figurative refugee? Have you had to leave behind things that you love? Have you been robbed of things that were precious to you? Jesus knows what that means. He's been there. He entered into your situation so that he could rescue you from it. Is your suffering this Christmas that of guilt and the feeling that you could never be worthy? Believe it or not, he actually understands that one as well because he literally took all of your sin and shortcoming and failure on himself. He became flesh so that he could bear your sin and your grief and your sorrow and take it to the cross so that you could be rescued out of Egypt, out of your suffering, out of your bondage, and delivered into the glorious kingdom of his Son. Christmas means that God cares and acts on your behalf. Think about the step-by-step leading of the people out of Egypt. God acting on behalf of his people, not just once, but over and over to provide for their deliverance. Think about that amazing guiding of Joseph and Mary through Matthew chapter 1 and 2. When, Jesus, when the angel says to Mary, this is what's going to happen, this is what it means. When Joseph is like, what is going on? i got to get out of this situation. And the angel appears to Joseph and said, Joseph, this is what's happening. This is what it means. This is what you're supposed to do. When, that, when God provides guidance to those wise men, go worship that baby, but leave another way because Herod's going to try and kill him. When God provides guidance to Joseph out of Bethlehem into Egypt and then provides guidance out of Egypt back into the land of Israel, and then says, but go to Nazareth. Step by step, leading all the way, God acting carefully and lovingly and powerfully on Israel's behalf and on Jesus' behalf and on your behalf. It doesn't mean that the path is easy, but it means that he entered into it, and he's still there, and he's still at work, and you can trust him to guide you out. And then ultimately, Christmas calls us to flee to the cross for deliverance because he came to be our Savior. Hosea is about God's reclaiming and restoring love. Bethlehem and Egypt and Nazareth are about God's reclaiming and restoring love. And his entrance into our lives and his identification with you this Christmas day is about God's reclaiming and restoring love. Let's worship him together in prayer now and throughout this day 
Don't forget, we have our candlelight services tonight, 4 o'clock and 5.30, when we can continue to worship together and welcome Jesus. Let's worship tomorrow and throughout this week. Heavenly Father, thank you. Who are we? Who am I to deserve your attention, your love, your care? Nobody. We could never deserve it. And yet you have done all of this on our behalf. Thank you that in this season we get to focus in particular on your overflowing grace, your tenderness and mercy towards us, and your mighty acts of power on our behalf. Lord, as we rejoice, as perhaps we grieve, as we wrestle with things that are going on in our lives, as we celebrate, turn our thoughts to you and our hearts to you in love and in responsiveness that we may indeed return and be restored. In Jesus' name, amen.